Welcome to Bioethics On Air, a program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Jose Ayalot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Before introducing our topic and guest today, I would ask that if you enjoy our podcasts and would like to support them, as well as support the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, to please go to our website, ncbcenter.org, click on the red donate button. We thank you for your generosity. This is the first of a two-part interview with Dr. Monique Ruberu, a staunchly pro-life board-certified OBGYN who practices here in the Philadelphia area. In the years since the U.S. Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, the abortion industry has claimed, and continues to claim, that women who experience serious pregnancy-related complications will be refused treatment by pro-life, and especially Catholic, clinicians and institutions. These claims arise from the perception that the Catholic Church does not allow medical interventions to treat pregnant women if the intervention could in any way affect her unborn child. This perception is incorrect. In this part of the interview, Monique responds to this false abortion industry claim in three ways. She first addresses the often heard claim that abortion is health care. She then explains ethically appropriate medical interventions for pregnancy-related complications. And finally, she discusses the true impact of abortion that she sees in her patients. Dr. Monique Ruberu, welcome to Bioethics On Air. Thank you so much for having me. So excited to be here with you all today. I, I do have to say, and, and this is true, I say this quite a bit, but in your case, it is really true. I've been after you for a long time to be on this podcast, months and months and months and months and months, and I finally got you, so I'm very happy um, oh, about that. Good. So Monique, you are a new guest on our podcast, um, and as we always do with new guests, can you please tell our listeners a bit about your background, specifically education, work experience, leading up to your present position? Absolutely. So I am a pro-life OBGYN, but I wasn't always. Um, I was trained traditionally uh, through medical school and residency in OBGYN, and I am a cradle Catholic, so always believed in the faith, always attended mass, but really I was more of a cafeteria Catholic for most of my life, not really understanding or having a true relationship with Jesus personally. And about 10 years ago, I had a just radical transformation in my life. My marriage was on the brink of divorce and God brought people into my life to heal my marriage. And that really set me on a path trying to find ways to know him, love him and serve him in all areas of my life. And I ended up coming outside of an abortion center to pray because that was something I had never done in the past and I, I wanted to do something that was outside of my box. And when I arrived there, I encountered Patrick Stanton, who later gave me a book about NAPRO technology. And I had never heard about NAPRO technology, which is natural procreative technology. It's a way of addressing every gynecologic issue without the use of contraceptives or IVF and really trying to delve deeper and look for the root cause of all problems. And 
when I read this, I was super excited because I was more of a holistic person to start off with. And the opportunity to treat people in a more holistic way that scientifically made sense and was abiding with my faith was just a win-win. And so I changed my style of practice. God kind of took me on a very curvy pathway um, (laughs) initially (laughs) working within a Catholic hospital, then, you know, ultimately kind of being nudged into owning my own practice, then really being completely independent of the hospital and doing basically my own thing. Um, And that's kind of where I am now. At this point, I am a public speaker uh, when it comes Mm -hmm. to pro-life, when it comes to natural medicine, when it comes to napro technology. I own my own business. I um, have other PAs who are hired in my office and they work alongside me. And I am a mother of five children, three of, sorry, two of which are saints in heaven and three of which are here. Uh, Happily married to my hubby now of 20 years. And uh, yeah, just super, super excited to be able to practice my faith as well as serve patients on a day-to-day basis. I guess my my daily routine is pretty much in the office all day and um, addressing everything from irregular cycles, abnormal bleeding, normal GYN visits, infertility, run the whole gamut and uh, doing so in a very natural and holistic way. So just to clarify, you are, you have your own practice now. I do. Is that, is that the, which is not typical in our, in the, in the world of healthcare today. You know, it's interesting when I started off uh, in residency training, I remember having a conversation with a person in private practice and I was like, why would you ever do that? I would (sighs) never want to be in private practice. And that's exactly where God led me. So. Yeah. yeah, now at this point in my life, I would never not want to be in private practice. I love it so much, owning my own yeah. business and you know, being able to structure my own day the way I want. Yeah, it's really kind of interesting. As you were saying that, I, I was remembering a, a number of months ago, I interviewed Chris Stroud, who I, I believe you know. Uh, he's an OBGYN in, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And he and his wife, they, have, they own their own practice as well, too. So maybe there's something good going on with Catholic OBGYNs, at least the faithful ones anyway, who are, who are uh, stepping out of the corporate medicine and, and into their own. Um, yeah, you know, we don't make much charge. money, but we're super happy. <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably a good thing. One other thing I do want to mention to you, you mentioned Pat Stanton. Um, and, and just for listeners, Pat is one of the, the pro-life leaders and, and his, his father was a pro-life leader here in the Philadelphia area as well, too. So, so a shout out to Pat as well. Yes, absolutely. The Stanton family in general. Yeah. All right. So let, let's, I, 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 let's get into your, your medical expertise here. Cause I was wondering if you could just kind of clarify some things for me and for our listeners. So, First up is is this term abortion. Now, abortion, as we as we commonly understand it, it can be defined as as an act that intentionally and directly ends the life or or kills an unborn child. 
But there's often, but abortion is also a medical term that is often misunderstood by non-medical professionals. And Monique, can you clarify from a medical perspective, what does the term abortion mean? The, the term abortion actually just means that the fetus is no longer living. But by placing other words in and around that is how we come up with the appropriate term. So like an elective abortion would be what we think of as abortion, somebody right. electively choosing to end the life of their baby. A spontaneous abortion is somebody who has miscarried. Okay. So that wasn't of their choice, but it just spontaneously happened. And I know sometimes people, because we'll hear it, people will see in medical records, um, mm -hmm. particularly women, they'll say they'll see the word abortion and, and they'll freak out, and, and rightly so sometimes. Yeah. Um, but what medically is termed an abortion is not necessarily an elective abortion, as you said. Exactly. Yeah. So, so I, I think, and I, you've seen it, I know I've seen it, that the abortion industry will, will use this, um, use this term or, or, or purposely create confusion by claiming that what is not an abortion or not an elective abortion, abortion actually is one. And, and we've seen a number of examples of this. So in light of this, I wonder if you could clarify some more of those terms. You said there's, you know, it's the terms that we put in front of the word abortion that, that, um, that are very important. So there's three terms that I've, I've heard quite a bit. It's we have threatened abortion, inevitable, inevitable abortion, and missed abortion. So for our listeners, can you clarify what do those two, what are, what do those three terms mean? I'm sorry. And what are appropriate medical interventions for them, if any? Sure, absolutely. So a threatened abortion just means somebody who is in a pregnancy and they have some signs that they may be leading to miscarriage. So typically okay. that's the woman who's early in pregnancy and now she's got some spotting or she's got some cramping and they're concerned that this may be a miscarriage coming up. So okay. they label it that as threatened abortion. So inevitable abortion, I have not heard that used at really? all. Yeah. Uh, but inevitable abortion would mean somebody who likely is not just having, a, they may even still have a heartbeat, but the bleeding is so severe, the cervix is open, you can see the passage of the tissue coming through the os. So there's nothing that you could possibly do to stop this, and it's got to pass. So a missed abortion is just a miscarriage. It's another, it's another term for spontaneous abortion. So this, this, you're actually answering kind of a question that I had here. So really these terms are referring to a miscarriage and not really an abortion. Correct. Correct. All of these terms are, are referring to a miscarriage and not an abortion. And it's and, and interesting. what you'll see, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. It's interesting because especially soon after Dobbs, when, what we heard on the radio, what we heard on social media was, if you have an abortion, if you have a miscarriage, you are not going to be able to have a DNC procedure for that miscarriage because right. they are outlawing all abortions. And it's like, no, anybody can have a DNC procedure for a baby who has miscarried. That has never been an issue and it never will be an issue. It right. is a question of 
removing a baby whose heart is beating. That's the issue. Yeah. I, I'm glad you said that because as we as we're recording this interview in the beginning of May, there's a I, I won't mention the publication, but there's a publication that has a story from people who are saying that the Catholic Church needs to be more, how shall we say, open to quote unquote women's health issues. And one of the arguments of one of the the writers is she was a woman, she had a miscarriage. She said it was a miscarriage, but she was saying that she couldn't get a D and E or excuse me, a DNC at a Catholic hospital, which is completely untrue. And anybody who reads the article, we're, we're talking about it here at the NCBC. It's like this person does either, either medically their their terminology is wrong or they don't understand Catholic teaching. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, if a child has died, a miscarriage, if a child has died in utero, it is permissible to, you know, use the, the appropriate medical procedure to remove that child um, from the mother's womb. Absolutely. And the thing that I wonder as well, Joe, is there may be doctors who are within an institution who they themselves are just misguided. Mm -hmm. And although they understand that this is a miscarriage and this is not an abortion, they are interpreting the laws in and of themselves without talking to anyone. And they're spreading yep. misinformation to their patients because they want to go along with the narrative. Yeah. So. Yeah. And there, there have been those cases as well, too. So taking this kind of the, uh, taking it the next step. So just so people know, I mean, Monique, you and I know each other from, um, a couple of different places, probably most notoriously from down in front of 777 Apple Tree Street here in Philadelphia, which is the, uh, it's the, the, I guess the primary, there is Planned Parenthood here too, but the, the women's center um, at 777 Apple Tree Street, all they do is abortions. And I, I see you down there uh, many times. One of the things that we're seeing um, over the past few months is abortion supporters um, coming down to 777 Apple Tree Street, playing music, dancing. Uh, besides that, one of the things that we hear, and it, it drives me nuts, I, you just, I just kind of shake my head at it, but one of the things that the abortion supporters chant is, abortion is healthcare, healthcare is a right. And I, I hear it again and again and again and again and again. So two, two really easy questions for you, and then one that i like to like you to, to kind of talk a little bit more about. First one is, uh, Monique, if the purpose of healthcare is to prevent an illness, i.e. preventive care, or it's to treat an illness or injury, what illness or injury is being prevented or cured by direct abortion? Absolutely none. Abortion <laughs> is not healthcare. Is there any medical condition at all? For which a direct abortion or an elective abortion, as you termed it, you know, earlier in the interview, is there any medical condition for which this is for which this is medically indicated? Anything? No, there isn't. The thing is, so many people will say things like, "Well, if a mom's life is in jeopardy, you have to have an abortion, and you have to have abortion available to her to save her life." But the truth of the matter is. There is never a case, no matter what the mom's illness is, that you can't watch the mom and watch the pregnancy and see how far you can get with it. 
And you may not always be able to get to the point of viability. You may have to deliver a patient early and they may deliver a baby that is not viable, but there's a difference between delivering a baby early, whether it be vaginal or through a C-section incision, and allowing that mother to hold that child, mourn that child, knowing that they did every possible thing that they possibly could to save the life of that child while not putting the mother's life at risk, while not killing the mother. And there's a huge difference between that approach versus going in, injecting a child with poison to give it a heart attack and kill it so that then you can force the mother to deliver vaginally or going in and limb by limb removing the parts of the baby and pulling it to pieces. Those are two completely different things. So in most cases, you can, even with moms that have really severe heart conditions, you can still monitor that pregnancy and monitor the mom really closely and watch and see how she's doing. And it's, it amazes me that that's not really the thought of doing that. It doesn't come across most people's minds. Right, right. So how would you, if so, if one of the abortion supporters was listening to this podcast, which would be great if they were, how would you respond to their claim? In addition to what you just said, obviously, but how would you respond to them, their claim that abortion is healthcare? I would say that abortion is is death care. That's what it is. I mean, the only thing it does <laughs> is it it ends the life of a living human being that likely did not need to be terminated. And it leaves the mother in a very, it, it causes trauma for this mom that is long lasting and trauma that we see in so many women. So it's taking a difficult situation and making it far worse. Yeah. And I like to talk about that, you know, the trauma that women face um, in a a few minutes. Um, But before getting there, I just talk a bit about some actual pregnancy complications. So I just, and again, we don't need a, I don't, don't need a a, a big medical discussion of it, but just kind of as an OBGYN, if if a woman presents in your practice um, with one of these conditions, what do you do? Like, what's the appropriate medical thing to do? Obviously, from a pro-life perspective. So, preeclampsia and help sim- and help syndrome. Um, so, briefly, what are we talking about here, and what's what's the course of treatment? So, basically, preeclampsia is a form of high blood pressure and spilling of protein into the urine that occurs during a pregnancy in some high-risk pregnancies. Um, It's dangerous because preeclampsia can obviously lead to extremely high blood pressures. It can lead to seizures. Um, It has kind of end organ effects on the babies. Babies who are born to moms that have issues with their blood pressures tend to be smaller. They tend to have growth restriction all of those sort of things. Um, When patients have mild preeclampsia, sometimes they are watched for a short period of time, but 
definitely when it becomes more concerning, the the decision is to deliver the baby. You always try and get the baby as far as possible so that it can benefit from their lungs maturing and whatnot. But the goal is always to try and have healthy mom and healthy baby. HELP right. syndrome is kind of the end uh, the end of that preeclampsia. It's like, you know, you have different levels of gradations of severity of this illness and HELP syndrome. These patients have very low platelets. They have issues with their liver functioning properly. And, you know, they may be very close to seizing. Um, and so you definitely have to deliver those patients very quickly because you've got to, you know, protect that mom and that baby. And that can come on. It, it doesn't necessarily happen later in the pregnancy. It can happen, you know, very early in the pregnancy. And we have had patients, I remember when I was working on labor and delivery, we've had patients that you see it, you identify it, and then you move on it just very, very quickly. And you deliver that child. But having a history of these things also, it's not a reason to abort a child. Right. Yeah. You, you touch on this, and I, I was going to follow up on this. Um, when does, and again, I don't know if there's a, a uniform answer to this, but does preeclampsia or HELP syndrome, is that usually a pre, now you said it can happen pre-viability, but does mm -hmm. it happen pre-viability, post-viability, where does it happen most often? In, in the gestational. Most often um, we see period. it in the third trimester, but okay. you can, yeah, when pa patients have a history, it's interesting. They used to say, once you have a history of preeclampsia, it tends to get more severe and more severe and more, it happens earlier in the pregnancy. However, okay. it's interesting because that was prior to me ever finding out about NAPR technology. And I had this one patient that when I first started doing NAPRO, I was on a podcast and she called in and she said, I had had preeclampsia with my first baby, then my second baby, I had it earlier, then my third baby, I had it earlier, and then I found NAPRO technology. And because I had progesterone supplementation and they monitored my levels all the way through my pregnancy, I never had preeclampsia again. So Ta-da! Yeah, it, it's amazing. And I think I can't say for 100% that, you know, we only give progesterone up to 37 weeks in patients when we're monitoring their progesterones during pregnancy. And when we stop the progesterone, I don't know whether if they don't deliver rather quickly, whether they might jump into more of a preeclampsia sort of a scenario mm -hmm. after the fact. But, um, yeah, this same patient literally just delivered another child out of our practice, monitoring her progesterones within the last few months. So very good. Awesome. Excellent. All right. What is PPROM or preterm premature rupture of membranes and particularly PPROM with infection? What is okay. that? And what is the, what is the pro-life <laughs> approach to treating it? Absolutely. So PPROM is when your water breaks, but it breaks early. So when you, um, when you're at terms, you know, 37, we I mean, 37 weeks or more, 
then if your water breaks, it's totally fine. You just prepare to go into labor and everything else. But if you're premature and you aren't in labor yet and your water breaks, then it's very concerning because a couple of different things. One is there's an increased risk of infection and that can cause you to deliver early. Okay. Number two is you can have the umbilical cord that can just prolapse out through the vagina. And then that would necessitate an early delivery, a stat C-section. Number three, sometimes PPROM will happen very early, like prior to what they consider to be even viability. Viability at this point kind of varies hospital to hospital. It used to be when I was training that viability was a strict 24 weeks and there was, right. you know, 23 and six days, you're still not considered viable, right? Even though your yep. dates may be wrong and everything else. But um, now, you know, there are babies that have survived who were 21 weeks or 22 weeks, and they may have some increased challenges, but they survived. I had a patient once who was 16 weeks. Yeah, she was 16 weeks and her water broke. And once again, the management depends on the hospital that you're at. Our particular hospital at that time, the management was, okay, you're going to stay in the hospital and you're going to have bed rest and we're going to watch you and see what happens. Not going to examine you because we don't want to uh, at least do digital exams with our fingers because we don't want to increase the amount of infection. Right. We might right. put a speculum in and take a look that's a sterile speculum, but otherwise we're not going to do much. We're just going to watch you and see if you develop infection or not. Can't give you any steroids or anything to help the baby's lung maturity until you're, you know, farther along, at least, you know, 22, 24 weeks. But we can just kind of wait and see. That particular patient was in the hospital. I remember an MFM physician went and saw her, told her all sorts of things like, you're not going to have any fluid around your baby. Your baby's going to be born with contractures. They won't be able to move their arms, legs. Their lungs aren't going to work because they don't have enough fluid for their lungs to expand and to mature. And so you should really have an abortion. We can transfer you to another hospital so you can do so. This patient was extremely pro-life and told that doctor never to step foot in her room again. <laughs> Good for her. Yeah. And then she was an amazing mom. She had two other children who had uh, type 1 diabetes who are at home that the husband was taking care of. And she had never been away from home, never been away from those children before. But she stayed in that bed and she stayed in that bed until 26 weeks. Wow. And she did wow. not develop an infection. She just drank lots. She tried to hydrate as much as possible because she knew that the fluid around the baby came from the baby urinating. And right. that baby, its core did prolapse at 26 weeks. She had a stat C-section. And that baby was completely miraculous. I remember doing his um, circumcision for him at 32 weeks, and he had no issues with diabetes. He had no issues with anything. 
And he was just this perfect little healthy guy. And the other day I saw a picture of him and he's just this adorable kid. So whenever I hear stories of people saying, you know, I had to have an abortion because my water broke at 18 weeks or my water broke at 16 weeks, I always think of this particular patient. And yes, it's 100% possible that she could have developed an infection. And if that was the case, she would have gone into labor or they would have had to have induced her because she had severe chorioamnionitis and that would have put her life at risk. But she was willing to sacrifice and try to do anything possible to save the life of her child. And that was a huge sacrifice, but it was totally worth it for her. For her, yeah, absolutely. I wanted to ask you about one more uh, because it's uh, in, in bioethics circles, it's a, it's a, you know, a, a kind of hot issue. It's the, um, the pulmonary hypertension question. And I don't know if you've, if you've dealt with it as, as an OBGYN or not, but um, I don't know if you can tell us what is pulmonary hypertension and again, from a, a, a pro-life perspective, what would be the what would be the proper course of treatment for that? Absolutely. So pulmonary hypertension. Let me. It has been uh, so the exact definition of pulmonary hypertension. So this is when you can have an increase in right ventricular stress and failure. And basically, there's a reduction in the compliance of the lungs. So you have an increase in the resistance within those lungs. This can obviously cause issues with your cardiac function, with your heart function. And it is absolutely one of the more concerning things. It's one of the most rare things. We, it's not something that is typically seen. I don't think I, in the whole time that I was working as an OBGYN delivering babies, I never had a patient with pulmonary hypertension. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does happen. And when it does happen, they treat with anticoagulants to prevent blood clotting in these patients and they manage them. But Just having pulmonary hypertension, once again, it's one of those things that you have to, you have maternal fetal medicine doctors who are the high risk doctors. Anybody who has any sort of illness during pregnancy, so whether you have severe hyperthyroidism or hypothyroidism and, or you have a severe diabetic or you have somebody with a cardiac issue or anything all of those people are automatically consulted on by these maternal fetal medicine doctors. They are weighing in on their care. They are giving them more ultrasounds, more um, non-stress tests to make sure the baby's doing okay, monitoring their blood levels, advising the doctors on exactly what they need to do to give them the safest possible pregnancy, sometimes even transferring them to a higher acuity hospital. And this is what they do. Like there is actually a specific group of OBGYN physicians that do additional training after they finish their OBGYN residency and their entire job is to deal with high-risk pregnancies. So just having a high-risk pregnancy does not mean that you're left in the lurch. No, there are people that are specifically made for you. (laughs) Well stated. 
Very well stated. All right, Monique, I want to go back to um, something you brought up earlier about you know patients who you see in your practice. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about treating post-abortive women in your practice. Mm. What effects does abortion have on women that you see? And, and how do you address these, these effects, these negative effects that these women are experiencing yeah. post-abortion? Yeah, absolutely. So just a, a little bit of explanation of a couple of things, first of all. So in my practice right now, my practice is a predominantly GYN practice. So okay. I, the obstetric aspect of my office is I help people with infertility. I help them to conceive pregnancies. And then I do not do their prenatal care for them. I do not deliver them. What I do is I monitor their progesterone. I monitor their thyroid throughout their pregnancy if needed. And I'm there kind of just like a backup person as far as like they can bounce things off of me anytime if they wanted to. But I'm not doing their prenatal care. Thus, okay. you know, all of the high risk OB questions and everything, that's all from my past, from what I have mm -hmm. done when I was practicing obstetrics. Um, now my practice, because it's typically GYN, I see a lot of women for annual exams. I see a lot of women for problem visits with abnormal bleeding and all that sort of stuff, PMS symptoms, depression, anxiety. Um, and oftentimes I discover that somebody has is post-abortive, has had an abortion in their history just in taking their day-to-day -day history, right? We ask everybody about their obstetric history. And in that, I'll always find out that somebody has had an abortion. Do you ask? I, I, I'm I do. kind of curious. You just I you do. ask straight out. Yep. So what I do is I ask, how many times have you been pregnant in your life? How many living children do you have? And then mm. I do the math. And then whatever's <laughs> missing, I'll... <laughs> I will ask, I'm like, so um, what about those babies in heaven? Are they, uh, were they miscarriages or were they abortions? And then they will tell me, whichever it was. And then if they had an abortion, I will always say, I am so sorry for your loss. And has anybody ever offered you abortion recovery services? And nine times out of 10, they will say no. And so then I will offer them, I'll talk to them about Rachel's Vineyard retreats right. and let them know that that's available to them. And most of them are very surprised that that's available and um, are actually interested in learning more about it. So give them that information. When I talk to them about their situation that occurred, because oftentimes in talking about the retreat, it leads into them sharing with me a little bit more about the abortion, right? Right, yeah. I am always blown away by the fact that most of these women have been holding on to this history of abortion for years and years. There was one really? woman that I saw just the other day, and she shared with me that she had her first abortion at the age of 15 and her parents didn't know about it. Her boyfriend coerced her into having the abortion, told her that um, she shouldn't you know, tell anyone about it, that they should just do this. And to this day, 
nobody knows about it except her boyfriend and me and this other friend of hers later that talked her into keeping her next baby from the same boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And she obviously left that guy, but she has been carrying around this guilt of this abortion and the sadness of having lost that first child for over 20 years. And there are so many women that I talk to that share with me that you know, they will, on the anniversary of the abortion, they will be looking around and they'll see children of the same age that their child would be. Or they will um, not be able to go into dental offices because the sound of the drills is the same as the sound of the suction machine. Or they will have recurrent nightmares with little babies reaching out to them and stuff like that. Um, they stay silent. There are so many women even within the pro-life community who have thrown themselves into pro-life service but are silently suffering because they don't want anybody to know that they themselves had an abortion. Wow. And so they're doing the work but they, they are afraid to share and to receive healing. There is a lot of um, anxiety, depression, just general sadness, stress that comes from this. And then there are the women that I see who I'm treating for infertility. And some of them have had abortions in the past. And there's always that question in their mind. Did that, did those abortions cause me to right. be infertile at this point? There's a woman who, um, her issue with her pregnancies is she would always deliver early and it was because she had cervical incompetence. That means the cervix couldn't hold the pregnancy in. It would just dilate early. And that can definitely occur after trauma from dilation of the cervix. And during an abortion, they have to dilate the cervix very right. widely. Right. And so, you know, you it's so hard because you're looking at this person and you're like, I can't honestly tell you that there's no way that that was related because I don't know. But thanks be to God, there is there are so many opportunities for these women to have healing. You know, there's Rachel's Vineyard, which is absolutely beautiful. There are so many other groups as well, you know, Surrendering there's, Secret, Silent No More. Um, Project Rachel. Project Rachel, yeah. So there's an abundance of places to go for healing for these women. And I think it's really important that they all know about it. But sadly, the majority of women have no idea about any of that. Right, right. Yeah, as you were speaking, I'm I recalling, um, I can remember being down at the March for Life in Washington, D.C. and really being surprised at seeing literally thousands, thousands of women holding signs that say, I regret my abortion. I, I remember vividly the first time I saw that and, and just how it struck me. And I, I guess from what uh, you're saying here, uh, you would certainly counter the abortion industry uh, position that, oh, women, there, there's, you know, abortion doesn't affect women at all. 
I, I, yeah, you see that yeah. in your practice every single day. I do. Absolutely. And, you know, there are, there is a really awesome film that was done. I don't know if you got, had the chance to see it. It's called Hush. And it was done by a pro-choice woman out of Canada. And um, she looks at all of these different claims as far I as the it. safety of abortion. Yeah, that yeah. was a really well done film. And I, I think that documentary in particular was great because of the fact that she was pro-choice. So she was looking at it with open eyes. Right. And she herself was concerned at the end of it for an increased risk of breast cancer. Right. And we have seen the breast cancer numbers going up. I think that's multifactorial, but this may be a part of it. Yeah. And she also, if I remember correctly, she also mentioned the, psychi the psychological issues. And I think she also yeah. mentioned um, subsequent preterm labor. Like so if a woman becomes pregnant after she has an abortion, oftentimes the, the child will, she won't carry the child to term. Um, so yeah, I, I haven't that seen that as often, um, but definitely the emotional aspect of right. the abortions, 100%. This concludes part one of my interview with Dr. Monique Ruberu. In part two, Monique speaks about her work with abortion pill reversal and 40 Days for Life. She also discusses the work of Thrive Pregnancy Centers. For more information on the topics discussed today and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter, as well as our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed in Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, please contact me or host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. Archived editions of the podcast are available on our website. Please hover on the blogs and podcast button on the main page and then click Bioethics on Air. Thank you for listening and may God's peace be with you. <laughs>